Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today I'll be talking about Isadora Duncan, a dancer from the turn of the 20th century who performed throughout America and Europe. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Bonorong Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose land we record this podcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge them as the custodians of an oral tradition far older than this podcast. I will need to provide some content warnings for this episode. It contains mention of death in car accidents, miscarriage and the deaths of children, alcoholism, depression, and suicide, racism against African-American people, World War I is here, and there is one fairly explicit description of sex. There's also a brief mention of domestic violence. If you don't want to listen to any of that, feel free to skip this episode. There are lots of other episodes. I'm sure you'll find one. I do kind of have a sources section here, but it's relatively brief. Isadora was extremely famous, not all that long ago, and there are so many sources, both primary and secondary, about her life. Just so many. Mm-hmm. So some of the key sources I've used included Isadora's own autobiography. Oh, well, that's you know, oh. both handy and probably horrendously inaccurate. Uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, like <laughs> deeply unhandy, but very illustrative, I feel like is probably <laughs> mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. it is. Like it's one of those things that's more illustrative of her character and how she'd like to be perceived mm, than yeah. that you can necessarily draw from and be like, yeah, these are the things that happened in her life. Yeah, yeah, but that's useful um, too. Yeah. I also used uh, Peter Kurth's Isadora, A Sensational Life. A huge, a huge biography. Um, (laughs) Again, we love and hate a huge biography. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly how it was. Along with Robert A. Shanks' That Furious Lesbian, the story of Mercedes de Acosta. Oh, Oh, wow. Um, Is Mercedes de Acosta Isadora Duncan or is that a separate person? That is a separate (laughs) person. That is a separate person who is a lesbian who is associated with Isadora. The reason that I used this and not Mercedes' actual primary sources is that Robert had access to primary sources that I didn't, including a first draft manuscript of Mercedes' autobiography. So I just assume Um, Mercedes is going to be a key figure in this episode. She is a significant (laughs) portion of the gay content. Okay, cool. Um, But I just thought I'd bring that up because the only place where we have the explicit gay content where Mm. I was able to access it is by trusting Robert about what he saw in this archive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, So the primary sources do exist, but they're in America. Okay. Look, that's better than primary sources in the author's private collection. The like, I feel like that's the most, just take my word for a yeah. citation. Yeah, private phone conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst one. I had yeah. a chat with him. Yeah. yeah. So now we're up to the straightforward part. That was so fast. Yeah. Bam, bam. Sources. The sources, were, <laughs> the sources were not that complicated. Good. It was in a time of like mass-produced newspapers. So I'm going to stuff this up like 50 times. Is it Isadora or Isadora? It's hard to, like, she lived in France for a while. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it depends where she lives. Um, so in France, it would be Isadora. Yeah. But I guess in English, people often say Isadora. Yeah. It was Isadora when she was born, as far as I know. Okay. So it's fine if I say It's either. fine. It's fine. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so she was probably born on May 26th, 1877 in San Francisco, California. I say probably, she always maintained that this was her birth date, but her birth certificate was lost in an earthquake. Okay. Um, And her baptism certificate is dated 
over a year later. So okay. maybe she was just late to be baptized. Yeah. Maybe she was just a year off in her birth date. Who knows? I mean, people often have a delayed baptism. I don't think we need to assume she's lying. Yeah, I don't think she's lying. We just have no physical piece of paper that says that date. Yeah. It's just that one of those things where you look it up and everyone's like, this is probably her birth date. I mean, um, nobody except me ever looks at my birth certificate and you all believe me about my birthday. I love the implication that you look at your birth certificate. Where is it, Alice? I don't know, in a folder in my room somewhere. I That's frankly more information than I have about mine. <laughs> Her parents were Joseph Duncan, a kind of jack of all trades who made his money in everything from banking to journalism to art imports. <laughs> when people say jack of all trades, I usually assume quite like hands-on trades. And then it was just like, you know, random non-hands-on trades yeah no it's more like journalism and like random investing type of stuff an entrepreneur yeah i guess that's the word and her mother was mary duncan who was a pianist and piano teacher some 30 years joseph's junior already that's a big age gap um isadora was the youngest of four children the others are called augustine raymond and elizabeth they will come back she's quite close with her family so okay stick those in your head um (laughs) pop quiz coming up oh gosh yeah i haven't quizzed you about where san francisco is yet it's on the left side (laughs) are you facing america from the front or the back you're standing behind america it's on the right (laughs) so in the earth's core yeah exactly all right all right you pass Around the time of Isadora's birth, the bank that Joseph was running was caught in a financial crisis and it was revealed that he'd been illicitly speculating on the stock market using his customers' money. He ends up up for like 16 charges of forgery. Okay. So what year is it? I immediately forgot. 1877. I have questions, but they just sound how banks work, so I won't won't put you through them. This is not a banking podcast. For sure. He did a bad thing and now he's in trouble. That's something we can take away from this. So this seems to have been the last straw for Mary, who had been putting up with his infidelity and questionable financial choices for some time. And also he fled to avoid the forgery charges. And then he fled like the family. Yeah. Like he fled altogether. He just like runs off. So the two separate and three years later, they officially divorced. Okay. Good for Mary. Yeah. A year after that, Joseph was let off on a technicality, but you know. (laughs) He's not important to our story anymore. (laughs) He will reappear occasionally. He's not gone forever, but the Duncan family is extremely tight-knit, and he is not involved in that. Okay, okay. good. <laughs> the separation put Mary in a precarious financial situation. California law did allow for women to have assets independent from their husbands and keep them after a divorce, but Crazy. obviously- Yeah, California law was surprising about this. It came from when California was part of the Spanish Empire. Oh, okay. Apparently they had- some more leeway about women independently owning property. So that was interesting. A fun fact. (laughs) Anyway, regardless, Mary was not independently wealthy enough to single-handedly support four children. She wasn't playing piano that hard. No. So she starts working as a piano teacher again, which she wasn't doing when Joseph was supporting her, and she starts taking on other, like, small jobs to make ends meet. Isadora remembered the financial insecurity as playing a big part in her childhood. She describes her early years as a perpetual state of terror, a continual changing of address from one small cottage or lodging to another. 
She also told this story, which comes from her autobiography, so illustrates as much about Isadora as it Mm. does, you know, don't imagine it's true, but I found it quite funny. (laughs) She remembers one day when the money had run out, finding her mother in tears on the bed, surrounded by knitted caps and hats that she had been trying to sell and had been unable to sell. And so Isadora writes in her autobiography, I decided I would sell these things for mother at a good price. I put on one of the little red knitted capes and caps and with the rest in a basket, I set forth. From house to house I peddled my wares. Some people were kind, others rude. On the whole, I had success. But it was the first awakening in my childish breast of the monstrous injustice of the world. That little red cap my mother had made was the cap of a baby Bolshevik. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was funny. Yeah. I mean, it could be true. I see true. why the cap was red. Did it happen to be one of those, like, red freedom caps? What are they called? I can't think of the word that they used to wear in the French Revolution. They're quite kind of shapeless yet pointy. She did not describe the cap in any further detail <laughs> than that, so choose to imagine it that way if you wish. Okay, I will. Um, but yeah, I feel like that will give you a sense of what Isadora is like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a life filled with symbolism. Yeah. By the age of 10... Isadora had dropped out of school, although she continued to enjoy going to the public library and reading on her own time. And she did come from quite a literate family. So she remembers like her mother reading poetry to them, reading like Shakespeare to them and the sort of great English language poets. So was it just because of money that she dropped out of school? In her autobiography, she kind of paints her decision to leave school as being like, I was a free spirit constrained by conventional institutions but at one point she very briefly mentions that it was difficult to learn on an empty stomach with cold feet Uh i kind of feel like it's as much about the poverty as it is about her not wanting to be at school yeah Mm -hmm. and it's very clear that her decision to leave school when she describes it in her autobiography she goes to her mother and she's like i've decided to leave school i'm going to earn money for us instead at 10 yeah. Oh, that sucks. That does suck. Because it, <laughs> it is the 1880s. So the four children are kind of doing that kind of miscellaneous odd jobs that Mary Duncan's doing Yeah. at this point, you know, selling misc stuff. Mm-hmm. Knitting little hat. By the time Isadora was 15 and Elizabeth, her older sister, was 20, both girls are listed in the Oakland City Directory. So they've moved to Oakland, which is slightly out of San Francisco, which is cheaper than living in San Francisco. And they're listed in the Oakland City Directory by this time as teachers of dancing. Later in life, Isadora would always play down any formal dance instruction she had. She always kind of presents herself with this idea that she's kind of tapped into some kind of natural instinctive Mm. movement Mm. that's sort of ideologically in opposition to established dance institutions. She describes her entire training as having had three ballet classes, after which she left offended when the teacher asked her to stand on her toes. I asked him why. He replied, because it's beautiful. I said that it was ugly and against nature. I left never to return. (laughs) (laughs) But a close friend of hers in Oakland recalls that they used to go to the local German club together where they had free gymnastics and dance classes. Do you know what kind of dance we're talking about here? So she does do a little bit of ballet training both Mm -hmm. now and later. And she also does like social dancing. Like she does like sort of the waltz, the polka, the mazurka, that kind of kind of like upper middle class social dancing. So she got free dance classes and gymnastics classes at this local German club. And then Mary Duncan works as an accompanist for Jay Masbourne, who is a dancing instructor. And the kids get some instruction with him. Okay. So by the time Isadora was 15, she's working as a dance teacher. Charles Caldwell Doby, a San Francisco writer, remembers the first time he met Isadora. 
when she was 15, he said she was not thrilling an audience at that time with her grace and fire. She was prosaically teaching a line of self-conscious girls and reluctant boys the steps of the polka. How much younger than her are these students, really? Yeah, not that much younger. They're probably like 10. She's like 15. Mm -hmm. The Duncan kids also put on some small performances with their students at local events, like local church events and some things like that. But in the words of Elizabeth, it wasn't very satisfying. All four of them had sort of ideas about dance as a capital A art form, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. So they didn't think that teaching like kids to do the polka was fulfilling their real artistic desires. Yeah. So with incredible audacity, they put together a little variety show that has kind of excerpts from Shakespeare and other crowd-pleasing plays and then some mm-hmm. music and dance in it, some of which is more kind of popular entertainment stuff and some of which is more like abstract theatrical dance. And they take it on a tour around California. How do they do this? I have no idea. They just call theatres and they're like, we've got a show. Do you want our show? So is this when Isadora's 15? Yeah, this is when Isadora's about 15. But she's Um, the youngest. She's the youngest. Yeah. Okay. Elizabeth's the oldest. Elizabeth's 20. This 20-year-old shepherding her teen siblings. (laughs) Yeah. It seems to have been moderately successful. This was a pretty normal kind of show to have in California at this time. Just kind of a mixed bag variety show of performing arts. So, like, it seems to have paid enough to cover its costs and maybe make a modest profit. Good. It didn't ruin them. They seemed to have fun. Well, that's good. It probably is, like, a fun little road trip. Yeah. I should have going by train. Yeah. Fun little train trip. I don't know how they travelled, but... (laughs) That's my guess. In 1893, around the same time as the Duncan kids were doing their little tour, Joseph Duncan reappeared on the scene with another dubious fortune. Cool. Who did he swindle for this fortune? Don't know. He will lose it quickly. Okay, okay. Um, But in the meantime, he set the Duncan family up in a mansion, which they called the castle. Mm. A mansion. So he had like a real fortune. He had a genuine fortune. It had a ballroom and a tennis court. Apparently there was a windmill in the garden. Okay. I assume like a folly, not like a legitimate one grinding grain. Like a mini golf. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like a mini golf windmill. So the kids converted a barn into a theatre and... They lived in the castle for the next two years until Joseph's financial success turned into a new disaster and the house was repossessed. Mm, I have no idea how Mary felt about this. Yeah, Mary, I think, is having a hard time. Like, you know, it's nice to be put up in a castle, but I'm sure she knew it wasn't going to last. Well, and also, like, maybe she just didn't want to see this guy. They are divorced. <laughs> they are Yeah, divorced. they are, like, legally, officially divorced. By this time, Isadora was dreaming of creating what she called a revolution in dance. So there are essentially kind of two theatrical dance styles on show at this time in sort of, like, Europe and America. And the first one is a kind of, like, sort of flashy music hall chorus line kind of Mm -hmm. style. It's a lot of like flouncy skirts, high kicks, sexy. I feel I'm accurately picturing the dance. Yeah. And the second one was ballet. I don't know if you remember anything from when like in 2017 we did the Nijinsky episode. (laughs) You're really stretching out my mindset. That was like the third episode we ever did. Yeah, I'm assuming that you don't remember. I know Nijinsky also pushed back against what traditional ballet was. I remember he wore that fawn costume and masturbated on stage. He did do that. Ballet at the sort of like turn of the century, so we're in the 1890s now, is not a particularly popular or well-regarded art form. That's very funny when ballet is now like the dance. Yeah, it's sort of seen as like a kind of stagnant art form that's on the decline. 
Okay. There are still people who are big fans of it, and it's still kind of seen as like valuable technical skill. It's still impressive, but it's sort of seen as on the decline. There hasn't mm-hmm. been much new ballet work created since its sort of mid 19th century heyday. And particularly in America, it doesn't have a very long or illustrious history. It would get seen occasionally, it would get performed, it would usually be touring ballerinas who would come out to America at the end of successful careers in Europe and just kind of do a tour, which would be like showcasing them and backed by a hastily trained troupe of random locals. Just kind of to remind the Americans that ballet exists. Uh, Yeah, I think it's a bit like when AFL players like wrap up their career on the Gold Coast, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, neither dance style is particularly well regarded as an art form. So is there like high art dance at this time or just nah? No, not really. And that's why Isadora has decided she wants to revolutionize dance. Okay. So I would have assumed that she was being like, ballet is too fancy, but instead she's kind of being like, ballet's not fancy enough. Yeah, she's kind of like ballet's too stuffy and rigid, and then the like musical style is too populist for her. Right, okay. And so she kind of conceptualizes her style in contrast with both of those. She wants to move away from sort of like rigid technique and showy movements and acrobatics kind of. Yeah. And she wants to do art. Yeah. She describes what she's doing as she wants to do natural movement and she's focusing on like elevating movements that a lay person can do to a kind of art. It's like the Alexander technique. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It is very closely associated with, there's a lot of kind of like physical education health crazes going on at the same time like this is sort of where rhythmic gymnastics and calisthenics and a lot of those like Mm, i remember doing research for work once on like uh like teen girl in the 1890s and like what she would have done and they have all these kind of exercises meant to be like gentle exercises that won't like strain a woman inappropriately that she can do in her kind of like yeah restrictive clothing that she's expected to wear but are gonna make you healthy and strong and yeah there are a lot of these kind of exercise crazes that are meant to like put people in touch with the like beauty of the natural human body and health and that kind of Mm, thing so mm. this all kind of fits into that and Isadora conceives herself as like rediscovering a natural dance form that has been lost due to I don't know oppressive society okay I did not invent my dance she would always say it existed before me but lay dormant I merely discovered and awakened it is that like a specific society she's like harking back to or is she just kind of like in the old times I'll give you a guess ancient Greece (laughs) (laughs) yes it is ancient Greece So, so do I remember correctly that Nijinsky, uh, some of his choreography was based off of like how Egyptians were drawn? Yes. So we've got our Egypt ballet dancer and we've got our Greece ballet dancer. So we need our, <laughs> I don't know, like Rome ballet we're dancer. Our, so we are. That's true. I don't, I don't feel like people really take a lot of artistic inspiration no. uh, from the Romans in that way. Obviously, in some ways, they take yeah. a lot from them. No, I definitely don't think there's been like an ancient Rome inspired dancer. Well, our time has come. Our time has come. Form a dance troupe with me. <laughs> yeah, so she links this like idea of natural movement to the ancient Greeks, and she's convinced that they like understood the beauty of the human body and of human movement and honored at dance as an art form. I'll let you guys tell me if that's true or not. Well, they did think a lot about the beauty of the human body, but yeah. I think most societies do. <laughs> 
did they think a lot about the beauty of the human body or did they think a lot about the beauty of the human male body? Yeah, Isadora seems quite comfortable, like, co-opting that okay. onto femininity. I'm not saying she, like, shouldn't or anything, but that's just something that's interesting to note, that that's kind of what yeah. she's connecting with. Yeah, and that's kind of what I meant. I wasn't saying she shouldn't or it didn't make yeah. sense, but just that she seems to see no trouble with kind of seeing the, like, masculinist 19th century 18 Grace fantasy and co-opting it onto, like, feminine beauty. Good um, for her. Cool. So, like, how literally does she understand what she's doing as evoking what ancient Greece was doing? Does she think they're physically doing the same steps or, like... No, not really. Although she does definitely, like, look at ancient Greek urns and, like, draw inspiration from the poses on them and stuff cool. like that. But she sort of more says that her dance is inspired by ancient Greece than she says... The ancient Greeks came to me in a dream and gave me the moves. You okay, know? <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, like, all right then, like, sure. Yeah. I mean, who am I to tell her if she is right or wrong in the way she is inspired? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is an interesting thing about dance. That, like, if we lose a dance, we really can't, like, ever get that dance back. Like, it's not like you can just, like, write down your dance in the same way we can be like, oh, here's this poem from ancient Greece. We've got it written down. We can read it. Yeah. There are actually a couple of, like, choreographical notation systems. Are they, like complete like if i pick up a piece of sheet music of a song i've never heard and i play it i'm playing the same song as somebody else is it the same if i picked that up and someone else picked that up would we be doing the same dance exactly i'm not sure like some of them were designed on ballet which is Mm. obviously quite a restricted movement Mm. vocabulary so it's relatively easy to create a sort of notation system Mm. for but i know they had one in like mid 20th century china when they were trying to like i don't know spread revolutionary theater to the masses so there's definitely a bunch of them out there but anyway i mean i'm sure like lion dance has something and stuff yeah it just depends on but something that's this naturalistic yeah might be more difficult yeah and isadora always resists like by the time she's getting to the second half of her career filming her is something that's entirely possible to do and people offer to film her and she always resists it because she feels like the art she's creating can't be captured on film So we don't have any footage of her? We have one very short clip of her, and we do have footage of her students. Okay. Okay. And there are definitely, like, works that she performs, which are described in a lot of detail, and I'm like, I really want to see this. Yeah. Um, I really need to know, like, how this worked. Is there, just to jump right to the end of the episode, (laughs) Yeah. is there, like, a style of dance she pioneered that people are now doing today? So she did set up a bunch of schools, most of which kind of floundered due to lack of funding, except the one in the Soviet Union, which lasted till the mid 20th century. Interesting. And so like Duncan dance was kind of a style that floated around and she had students who kind of carried it on. And there are people who are still studying it now, but more from a kind of historical academic standpoint. Mm, Mm. But a lot of the techniques that she created kind of got co-opted into what we call like modern dance or contemporary dance now. Okay. She had a bunch of like thoughts and ideas about like momentum and fluidity and movement and like where the movement starts in the body Mm -hmm. and things like that, which kind of get drawn into a sort of broader contemporary dance movement. 
Okay, so she's definitely like influenced dance, but it's not like she created a branch of dance. Yeah, not as clearly as like you can think about other sort of slightly later contemporary dance names. Like Martha Graham, there's still like a Graham style and a Graham school. and mm-hmm. But yeah, Isadora Duncan, not so much. Cool. Anyway, that's her dance style. She auditioned it at numerous theatres in San Francisco, but mostly got feedback from producers that was kind of like, look, that's all very nice for your local church hall, but it won't bring in money. Take it away. And so finally, following the castle being repossessed and convinced that San Francisco was incapable of understanding her dream, Isadora and her mother took a small suitcase of jewelry and $25 in cash and moved to Chicago. And all the other siblings just like moved out of home by now? Yeah, the other st- siblings are still in San Francisco at this time. Just like okay. misc renting a place, you know. So they've moved to Chicago for her dance career? Yes. I admire her determination. She also sounds a bit pretentious. She's so pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, the, that's sort of interesting is that like... I kind of picture dance on this, like, continuum, and I don't know anything about dance, and you know That's quite okay. a lot about Go dance, yeah. I, I'm saying this with the knowledge of that, as this kind of continuum of sort of, like, you know, rustic or quasi-rustic through to, like, really, really highly stylized, and I imagine people just kind of react against each other and go up and down the line. And she seems to just, like, want nothing to do with either of those, but also to be both. And that's very interesting to me. Yeah, that is kind of an accurate description of the situation. (laughs) The situation. (laughs) Yeah, like, the fact that, like, she's kind of, like, rejecting all dance that was currently Mm. available to her. You know, she's opposed to the rigidity of ballet technique, but she's also very convinced that she has her own technique that Mm. you need to actively learn from her. Mm. So she's not opposed to technique. She's just opposed to the way in which ballet approaches technique. Yeah, she's very opposed to it as, like, she sort of conceives it as like an unnatural and an unhealthy form of movement. And so it's not truly beautiful the way hers is. Look, I've been to some ballet classes and it is definitely unnatural. (laughs) Can confirm. Um, Like when she talks about ballet, I'm like, you're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Just to, you know, ask you some random questions. See if you have the answers. Yeah, go on. What does she think about folk dance? She's actually not that keen on it. That really seems like it should be right up her alley. That's kind of what I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She's not that keen on it. Like, she goes to the Soviet Union later, and they put on some folk dances for for her. She kind of says, and I don't have the quote here because I didn't Mm. expect you to ask me, but I will kind of paraphrase it, that she's kind of like, this is constricted by the fact it was developed in a restrictive society. She's like, this is constricted by the fact that it was developed under serfdom. You need a liberated dance for your new society. Okay. Right. That is interesting. I would like to kind of start to ask questions about how her politics intersect with her dance, but I will let you get to that in your own time. I'm sure we'll get there. (laughs) Okay. So Chicago was supposed to be one of the more like progressive and modern cities of America at that time. They'd had the Chicago like, World's Fair in 1893. And so Isadora and Mary kind of hoped that if they went there, they would find someone who was keen on the idea of sort of ancient Greek inspired, natural human, beautiful movement, etc. her revolution in dance. She didn't find much success there at first. So rapidly running out of money, when a producer on seeing her audition suggested she try something with a little bit more pep, she turned to a more commercial musical style dance and managed to pick up some work that way. She didn't love it. She lasted for a couple of weeks. Oh, she really didn't love it. Yeah, but it got her and Mary the money to join the Bohemian Club, where free beer and sandwiches sort of put off the urgency of earning money. Good, good. 
They're like, I don't know how we would have made it through without the free sandwiches from the Bohemian Club. They are like European clubs are really doing her well. Like German yeah. club bought her her dance and gymnastics training. They're actually in the Bohemian Club for her food. Yeah. So is the Bohemian Club like an ethnic club of people from Bohemia? No, it's more like a sort of poets and artists okay. club. It's run by this eccentric <laughs> old lady. Because we had the um, German club before. I was like, what type of Bohemian are we talking Yeah, no, the German club is a genuine like German-American immigrant club. Yeah, yeah. The Bohemian club is just this sort of misc club for bohemians yeah okay. that has sandwiches and beer that has free beer and sandwiches provided by this rich old lady that, that sounds, sounds nice great. so yeah they join the bohemian club and then they eat free beer and sandwiches until isadora manages to find a job that she doesn't hate and the job is so after months of auditions she starts trying a different approach every morning she showed up at the theater of augustine daily and told his secretary that she was there on an important matter and had to speak to him directly. Mm -hmm. Every day. Every day. Until finally the secretary was like, all right, fine, come in. You can talk to him. (laughs) Augustine Daly was one of the most successful theatre producers in the United States at this time. He had a theatre in New York, he had a theatre in England, and he took companies on tour around America a lot. He produced a mix of, like, Shakespeare, but cleaned up with the sex jokes taken out, as was the norm at the time. I did not even know that that was what they were doing back in the day. Those pages must have looked like Swiss cheese. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And like popular modern theatre. And he would sort of incorporate dance numbers and music and things into them. So he's Mm -hmm. producing sort of popular theatre, but he sort of sees himself as more of an artist and less of a commercial producer. He's kind of on Isadora's wavelength on that level. Okay. Okay. They're going to be best buds. He was opposed to what they called the star system, which is to say having like one big celebrity as your draw card Mm. and everyone else is just miscellaneous people. Oh Mm. yeah. Okay. That does seem like not a very sustainable way to run your business. It was kind of the norm at that specific period, but a relatively recent thing. Okay. Yeah. That there would be these sort of big name celebrity performers and they would be the draw card of the show and everyone else was just like, you know, misc guys who came to wear the costumes and fill in. So Augustine was known for taking chances on unknown performers. Good. So when Isadora managed to get in, I don't know exactly what she said in his office. In her autobiography, she says that she harangued him with a speech about her revolutionary idea. She sounds obnoxious. She does, doesn't. You know, it's not an uncommon story to hear like, oh, I turned up at such and such every day until they gave me a chance. Like, okay, like I admire the determination, but the customer service work on the other end of that, like the receptionist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I fully understand this receptionist because this is what I would do if the same person phoned me four days in a row. I would call the person that they wanted to speak to and be like, can you just tell them to go away for me? Yeah. <laughs> so she harangued him with a speech about her revolutionary idea and Augustine decided to give her a small part in a pantomime. Cool. <laughs> you can be Columbine. Understudy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which wasn't bad. Like, it was going to be steady work for a period of time. And he was like, look, get to New York when the contract begins and you can have a small part in this pantomime. So she sent a telegraph back to San Francisco and was like, help, I need to get to New York. Can you guys send me some money? Mm -hmm. And her siblings sent her some money. Nice. So she moves to New York where not long after her siblings join her, they all have sort of a lot of similar ambitions and ideals to Isadora. Like, they all have theatre ambitions and these sort of ideas about ancient Greece. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So it's not sort of shocking for them to be like, oh, look, Isadora is having some success. We're going to go and join her in New York and see how we go. So she heads off to New York. So Isadora spent a year working under Daly. 
After her first pantomime, Daly let her know he was planning a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream and that if she liked, she might have a solo dance in the fairy scene. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a good place for some weird ancient Greek-inspired dance. Yeah, I think that's what he thought too. He was like, look, you can put on some little fairy wings and do a weird ancient Greek dance. Yeah. Um, Isadora wasn't keen on the fairy wings. She thought they were kind of tacky and she was like, I can just make myself into a fairy through gesture and self-expression. You know, I don't need this costume nonsense. <laughs> um, but Daly insisted. <laughs> Artists should be supported by society, but are also the most insufferable group of people. <laughs> yeah, it's always that thing where you read about them and you're like, I see that you wouldn't have had a career if you didn't behave like this, but imagine behaving like this. <laughs> Yeah. It's also just like the further removed you are from the art in like time or space, like, you know, we're never going to meet Isadora. We're never going to see her art in person. Just the more absurd any art sounds and you describe it verbally. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's very hard to comprehend that something was groundbreaking from yeah. this far away. Like to just put into words how groundbreaking some dance was a hundred years ago. Very it's hard. So hard. Yeah. And yet you keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, he gave her a fairy scene to dance in. Apparently her first performance as the fairy was a huge success. The audience broke into spontaneous applause and Daly was like, you kind of stole the show. I'm dimming the lights a little bit on that scene. <laughs> well, he was like, that was too good. Yeah. You need to pay attention to, I was desperately trying to remember which one, Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> it's the one with the Titania and Oberon in it and Puck. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But who are the like human characters? Theseus and Hippolyta. It's set in Athens. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> I kind in of the least real way possible. I guess it makes sense to put a weird Greek stuff in here then. Yeah, it does fit in. Yeah, so she worked under Daly for a year. He took her when his company went to the London Theatre for a tour a little later. He also encouraged her to have more dance training and organised for her to study under ballet teachers both in America and when she went to London. And she was like, okay, but I'm going to lie about it forever. <laughs> yeah, presumably. <laughs> cool. There's a photo shoot from her at this time, and you can really just see that she's a like ballet trained dancer. Okay. Oh, okay. It's yeah. very obvious in like her movements, in, in like her poses, in her costumes. Yeah. You look at it and you're like, I can tell that you're someone who's like done ballet training and is trying to break away from it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. At first, she was just happy to be dancing on stage, even if she had to wear the little fairy wings. But after a year... The sort of pantomime aesthetics, the fairy costumes, all that kind of thing started feeling limiting to her. And she quit the company, planning to use the connections she'd made while working there to start a solo career as a dancer. Being a solo dancer was not, as it is now not, really a career path. Yeah. Yeah. How do you have a career as a solo dancer? Like, is the aim to kind of become one of those big name stars that we were talking about before? He just kind of has a backing troupe, but you are the draw card? Like, what was she envisioning? I don't know how clear her vision was of how her career was going to go here beyond the fact that she imagined being on a theatre showing vast audiences her revolutionary dance style that was mm. going to remake humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I feel like we've just been low-key, like, mocking her this whole episode. Uh, yeah, that's a little bit true, I guess. Yeah, you're probably um, right. I don't but know if know, that's good. I, I mean, I'm not going to apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I do mean, think it's cool that she's chasing this dream, and she clearly has something going because people are responding well to it. Yeah. But, like, I think also we're not going to pretend that she's not being, like, pretentious and slightly ridiculous. Like, that's... <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. That's just the situation. That's yeah, fair. and even, like, for her whole 
career, she gets that kind of mixed response where sometimes people see her and they're like, this is beautiful, this changed my life. And sometimes people see her and they're like, this makes a mockery of art, this is comical. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, like she does get a kind of mixed response where people look sometimes and they're like, this isn't dancing, there's no value in this, there's no technique, anyone could get up and do that. I mean, that video you showed us of her definitely was dancing. Yeah. <laughs> Whether or not it's up your alley is a different thing, but she's yeah. definitely dancing. Yeah. So she had some success in New York, usually in like small salons, wealthy women would hire her to come and do a dance for their salons and things like that, which did give her complete artistic freedom about what she did. Should we bring back salon culture? Yeah, sure. sure. Hire me to do a little dance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <okay. laughs> but in general, she found the pay wasn't very good and they tended to view her work as this kind of like very pretty pastoral girl in a little tunic. Rather than seeing what she was hoping to mm-hmm. put into it. So the Duncan family in New York was supported as much by Elizabeth's dance teaching and that kind of thing as it was by Isadora's burgeoning career. So are the brothers also dancers? They do dance a little and they were somewhat involved when Isadora and Elizabeth were teaching dance in San Francisco. But they're more into theatre. Oh, okay. Yep. In 1899... After the Windsor Hotel, where the Duncan family was staying in New York, burned down, the Duncan family decided that it was time to move to London. This was both to pursue Isadora's career and to pursue Raymond's career. Raymond wanted to become an actor. What does Mary think about all of this? Mary's very supportive. Mary's just like, I don't know, my kids are going to have arts careers. That's fine. Good Good, good, Mary. Mary's a musician herself. Yeah, Mary's been a piano teacher this whole time, and I guess they have been earning money on and off teaching dance since they were teenagers, so there's Mm. obviously something in it. Yeah. She's Mm. obviously like, you're not going to be impoverished forever doing this. Just impoverished, like, every now and then. Yeah, just (laughs) impoverished sometimes. But frankly, that can happen to you no matter what your career is. Yeah. So they moved to London. The family is very confident that Isadora has something special, and eventually someone's going to get it. It's good that she's got, like, such a supportive family. Yeah. Mm. And they hope that in Europe... They would get it. So at this stage, she was performing to a mix of things. She was performing the stories of Greek myths set to music. Sometimes she was performing to spoken word read by Raymond. Mm-mm. So she did some dances to like quatrains from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Okay. I don't know what any of that means. It's a famous book of Persian poetry. Okay. Cool. I really just tell you that so you can imagine that she's trying various different things here. Mm, Yeah. She's trying sort of abstract works. She's trying like directly interpreting Greek myths into movement Mm -hmm. um, in which she would often play multiple parts in the dance. Are other people in the dance too? No, or is just, she just, just her. She's just everyone. Okay. Um, or she would try interpreting like poetry as movement. She tried a lot of things at this stage. It wasn't a failure, but she wasn't super popular. One critic describing her quite negatively said, there's something bucolic about her. There's no tragedy. There's no eroticism. There's no real femininity in her essence. This is why she can be at once Orpheus and Eurydice, Narcissus and Daphne, Pan and Echo. It's funny because he's kind of like, she's not really anything. So she can do all these diverse roles. It's like almost a compliment. Yeah. So this is Andre Levinson. He was a Russian in London. And the same guy later on is like, I think I just didn't understand her innovation. That was quite good. <laughs> like, yeah. Years later, he comes back and he's like, oh, no, it was me. I just didn't get it. <laughs> but at this stage, he's like, she's just not anything. So she can be everything. I don't get it. Yeah, which actually is, you know, quite impressive in a way. It is a real shame that we can't see these because responding to that is quite difficult where I'm like, okay, I guess she was doing something, but like, what did yeah. this? I'll never know. Yeah. And I can read you like, I'll read you another critic who apparently loved her, who wrote, 
Her exits are as lovely and mysterious as her entrances. After the quivering, gleaming, daring gestures and swift flights, it all suddenly ceases, but very slowly, the last picture is held for a space, recalling the profound phrases of music. Okay. And then at the end, he says, If Chopin caught the music of our souls and gave it cry, so does Isadora Duncan give it tangible flesh with a silent life. I'm starting to think I just don't really get death. (laughs) (laughs) I found this true because people described things that I was like, maybe it's there. And I just never saw it because we have such limited material Mm. to work on in terms of seeing what her work was Mm. like. But yeah, like that quote, someone's really describing how dance made them feel. Yeah. Which is obviously quite a difficult thing to describe and quite ephemeral. Yeah. 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 So if we're just reading that to be like, but what did this look like? Obviously that gives us. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I was kind of like, all I can do is be like, some people were feeling it. Some people were not feeling it. Yeah, that's all right. So she wasn't pulling big audiences at this stage. She gradually moved away from the spoken word element the public seemed to prefer dancers to music partly because that was sort of their expectation Mm -hmm. and partly because Raymond who did the readings had a California accent (laughs) and they didn't love it when you said he was reading um, I'm sorry I can't remember the name of the Rubaiyat yeah was he reading that in yeah. English? Yeah, he was reading okay. it in translation. Was it like Persian to California accent? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> so Raymond moved to Paris to pursue his own career, and Isadora followed not long after. So Paris is where people are gay, I understand. So what year is this? Well, like late 1890s. Okay. 1900 maybe by now. Oh, Oscar Wilde's in Paris. Yes. So are a lot of gay people. <laughs> there are a lot of gay people. She briefly interacts with a lot of gay people. You can do a little kind of name drop bingo card scenario. <laughs> there were a lot of things where I was like, I can't really bring this in because it's just like, and then she happened to see this guy. <laughs> you know him. She knew him. Yeah, that's exactly right. Alfred Douglas is here briefly. That scumbag. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So she heads to Paris. In mainland Europe, she was finally able to embark on a financially successful tour. They seem to be just culturally at this time very open to weird stuff. (laughs) Just weird stuff. Yeah, they're just very open to sort of like seeing new things. Well, I know in France, I'm probably thinking a bit later actually, they got very into quote-unquote African dance and kind of looking at like, to use the words that like they kind of were thinking about, looking at kind of tribal dance and kind of stripping away the societal layers that have been put on mm-hmm. art and going back to what they considered like a really... Primitive thing. Prim- yeah. Obviously like as they considered it, not in actuality. Yeah, yeah, obviously that was all very racist. Yeah. But I feel like this kind of thing would have kind of fit in with those ideas. Yeah, and I think Isadora's idea that she's kind of recasting dance as an art form rather than an entertainment Mm, is kind of tapping into a zeitgeist among kind of the intelligentsia sort of artist set in Europe. Yeah, see, when I said I don't get dance, I think that's what I meant. I get it as an entertainment. I get it as an activity. I don't get it as an art form. (laughs) I'm not on the wavelength of these intelligentsia. (laughs) I mean, I guess the question is, do you get music as an art form? I don't know how to draw the line between music as entertainment and music as an art form. Yeah, exactly. How did you draw that line for dance? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's the thing, right? It's like, should we draw that yeah, line? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, I think that in some ways it's similar to this conversation that people have a lot these days between having meaningful discussions and just making content mm. and stuff like that. Like, I, I get that. But I think also it's like, well, what you divide into art and entertainment 
yeah. can be like really deeply insufferable. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah, like sure. I don't know where Isadora stands on that either. But yeah, like yeah. that's complicated. Yeah, Isadora is often quite like denigrating of other dancers that people perceive as her competitors or that mm-hmm. people perceive as kind of doing similar oh, okay. things to her. She's often quite like they're not authentic. Yeah, that's not authentic. <laughs> they're just moving. Okay, I'm. Dancing, capital D. Yeah. But I I mean, we said before that, you know, her family had faith that at some point someone would like get what she's doing. And it sounds like she's found like the people who get what she's doing. So that's lovely. And I'm very happy for her. (laughs) Yeah. I have one description of her from Louis Fuller, who was another contemporary dancer of the same era. And they toured together briefly. Mm -hmm. And Fuller remembers Isadora as an artist dancer who walked around in a gray empire robe and a man's hat with a veil and made an absurd impression on everyone around her. She was as talented as she was eccentric. Her present appearance was normal, I may say, compared to what she wanted to do, for she was always saying she intended to take off nearly all her clothes and dance in the streets. Of course, I attributed this extreme condition of mind to the fact that she must be a genius. (laughs) So that's kind of where she's at. So about this man's hat. I never saw the man's hat mentioned again. Okay. okay. That's just what she was wearing at that time, apparently. Okay. So that's not overall reflective of any kind of masculine style of dress to kind of no. angle towards the queer. <laughs> no, for sure if it was, I would have brought that up. And Isadora generally throughout her life feels very strongly about her self as a woman, about her like physicality as a woman. Okay. About having a woman's body. Like she feels very strongly connected to womanhood. Okay. And so I think she just had that hat. Do people comment on her clothing a lot? Like, does she generally dress very eccentrically? And can we have more examples of that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. She goes through some very weird dress phases in her life, including the ancient Greek only phase. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess that doesn't really surprise me given her general, like, views. She's very opposed to what's kind of conventional women's dress at this time because mm. it's very restrictive she feels yeah. like it's limiting to natural movement we're still in the corset era yeah and the bustles yeah and she feels that this is all kind of limiting to natural movement and creating unhealthy sort of movement patterns in people she could be right yeah that seems fairly yeah. reasonable to that think. seems reasonable yeah one leg of her european tour took isadora to hungary where she met oscar berge an actor the two of them quickly fell in love Isadora kept her tour in Hungary for as long as she possibly could, like several months dancing at like village town halls and stuff like that. Nice. <laughs> it's pretty fun for the Hungarians. Yeah. So they stayed together for several months. She discovered that she wanted children. In one letter to Oscar, she writes, Darling, I want a child. I want a child so much. A cow can have a calf. A cat can have kittens. Why shouldn't I have babies? Why shouldn't I? <laughs> I mean, why shouldn't you then, Isadora? I don't know. Maybe you're on tour doing a dance performance. Yeah, I guess that is the problem with being like a dancer and wanting kids is like that will affect her career yeah cats don't have to worry about this stuff in the end practicality got in the way of their relationship Isadora was obviously unwilling to give up her finally successful career to stay in Mm. Hungary with Oscar and Oscar was similarly unwilling to leave his acting career to tour with her yeah understandable but sad so they moved on from each other quite amiably okay and Isadora's tour moved on to Vienna when she arrived in Vienna Isadora immediately checked herself into a private hospital and sent a telegram to Beregi. Although she never mentions it in her autobiography, Oscar's own papers state that she was pregnant and that she had a miscarriage in the hospital. Mm. He immediately got on the train to come and see her. 
It's very sad given the letter that you just read to yeah, us. Yeah, it is very sad. And he says he arrived in the hospital and he said, finally, in a scarcely audible voice, she said to me, no baby. Oh, oh that's oh. very tragic. So this took quite a toll on Isadora's mental health. She took a break from dancing for several months in Vienna until money ran out. And she was fortunate enough to find that when she returned to dance, it was quite good for her mental health. Yeah. But it was a very sad time for Isadora. Mm -hmm. Austria and Germany loved her. She had huge success there. She became very rich and famous. Good. It's nice. kind of interesting, like, not knowing that much about, like, dance in different countries to find out, you know, oh, yeah, she did pretty well in France. Austria and Germany loved her. She did not do very well in America. Yeah, and I find that really interesting as well because at no time is she hugely successful in America the way that she is mm. in Europe. Mm. Okay. And sort of where she's successful in Europe is different at different times. Mm. Um, do you have yeah. any insight into why? Yeah, I can talk a bit about it. So one of the reasons she's less successful in America – at first, they just kind of don't get it. But at that stage, she was still sort of dancing in tights and like dance slippers mm -hmm. and then a little tunic. And then later on, she gets to just dancing in bare legs and bare feet in this little tunic. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of her iconic costume mm -hmm. after that is that she's always barefoot and bare legged. And in America, that just doesn't gel with their sensibilities. It's a lot mm -hmm. more shocking in America okay. to see a woman with bare legs on stage mm -hmm. oh, than yeah. it is in Europe. In Europe, it's kind of... You know, scandalous, but in a, in a fun way. In a way. fun way, yeah, <laughs> okay. exactly. Where in America, it's quite actually not confronting. On. Yeah, it's quite mm -hmm. like it's kind of too much. Yeah, and like at various times, you can sort of see what's popular. Like she gets some success in France later on, and then her success gradually declines as ballet becomes popular again because the ballet russe comes through there and is a huge success and yeah. people start getting interested in ballet technique again and they're looking at Isadora being like but what's here mm -hmm. okay. the technique isn't right and she's like that's the whole point <laughs> yeah yeah and so there are a lot of sort of shifts in what people are looking for in dance and culturally mm -hmm. what people are looking for and that sort of prudishness comes back like mm -hmm. early in her career in Europe people are quite willing to look at her in her diaphanous little tunic and be like well we could see a lot of her body but it was obviously chaste it was um, for art yeah there are other times in her career where people will look and be like this is not on this is unreasonable mm -hmm. and yeah i think it just kind of depends on those sort of shifts this is a real kind of struggle that's going on in like to use a really loose word, in, like, Western culture at the mm, time. Yeah. Between this, like, sense of, like, the human body is inherently beautiful and inherently a sort of positive, innocent thing. Yeah. And this, like, moral sense that it shouldn't be seen. Yeah. yeah. And these two things are really in conflict. Mm. Yeah, which means that it just kind of does depend, like, where she goes, when she goes, what's been around before her at that place. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, she really took off in Austria and in Germany. And Austria and Germany are the source of a lot of those health crises I was describing mm, before. That's true. Yeah. I did know that. And I know to a very limited degree that some of that does have, like, rhetorical connections to their contemporary perceptions of antiquity as well. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So that would seem to jive with her quite well. Yeah, the whole sort of like ancient Greek naturalistic movement thing is definitely tapping into a zeitgeist. Yeah. It that, didn't yeah. really just come to her in a dream, sure. you know? Yeah. But yeah, that does sound like, you know, early 20th century Germany. Yeah. For mm. better or for worse, ultimately. Yeah. So I just want to talk a little bit more about 
the ideology of her dance and how that interacts with other things. She had no qualms about bringing politics into her performances in various ways. And her own political ideals were fairly hazy. She didn't have any sort of in-depth interest in politics other than a general sense that art should be publicly funded and people should get fed. I think we can all agree on those points. Yeah, Yeah, like very reasonable desires with no kind of clear framework. Yeah, But she was also quite comfortable with nationalism and with engaging with nationalism in her work as a way to appeal to her audiences. Okay. So in France, she often performed to La Marseille. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. And at one stage, in a very famous performance of hers in a farewell tour from France when she was planning to go to America for a while, she did a performance to La Marseille where at the last moment she took off her costume and was wearing an American flag underneath and the Star Spangled Banner played. Oh, right. um, It was kind of like a farewell tour. Yeah. And it's really interesting in that when I hear these things now, it's like, oh, this sounds like sort of fairly shallow entertainment kind of stuff. Mm. But yeah. Audiences really seem to respond to this quite genuinely and quite deeply, mm-hmm. mm. like quite deep emotional responses to it. And I think some of that has to do with the, like World War One is coming up. Yeah. Nationalism was really in the zeitgeist. Yeah. But obviously an ideology that's kind of rooted in this sort of obsession with classical Greece and has nationalism in it does come with an element of racism. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And especially this kind of combines with her understanding that her art is better for being chased. So is that like in contrast, for example, before you were talking about that kind of like showgirl? Mm. Yeah, but it also winds up. So what her belief is, she believes that the sort of stagnant European dance styles like ballet, like the ballroom dance styles, are, she says, overly Apollonian. So they have too much of Apollo and insufficient Dionysus. Oh, this And conversely, so we're talking in the early 20th century, like jazz and jazz sort of Mm. music styles are getting quite big in America. And she's quite opposed to the idea that this is the sort of quintessential American music because she thinks that African and African American music and dance is too Dionysian without enough Apollo in it. Mm. Um, But she... But she is going to find this perfect balance. Yeah, okay. She's quite consistent about this particular idea. And I was like, I can't just pretend that it didn't Mm -hmm. exist because even though she talks so much about being like, I'm bringing natural movement, I'm going back to sort of the truth of society. She's like, this is something only I know about and other races can't achieve. Mm -hmm. It's not out of step with a lot of what is happening in Europe at this time. Mm -hmm. But it is racist. It is racist. So I'm going to talk a little bit now about Isadora's family life. We've just learnt that she really wanted children. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to warn you in advance that this is a bit of a tragic story. Okay. okay. I don't want you to get very invested in these children and then be very sad. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, we will all brace ourselves for the death of these children. I am very sorry about that. That is what's going to happen. Okay. So, as you know, Isadora had wanted a baby for a long time by this time. Sorry, can I just ask about that? You said that when she met Oscar in Hungary, she discovered that she wanted children. So is that kind of the first time we hear about her wanting kids? That's the first time we hear about it. Before that, we hear about her wanting to experience sex, wanting to be in a relationship um, but we don't we don't hear about her wanting kids. So we're coming to the like early 1900s now. Yeah. So Isadora really wants a baby, and she starts a relationship with a man named Gordon Craig. He's an English man. He works in like theater production. 
Do they bond over having a Scottish first name as a surname? (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Very specific club. So she meets Gordon Craig. He's keen on what she's doing. She's interested in what he's doing. Good. And they develop a relationship. He's already married. He has a wife in London. Okay, that's a pretty key fact. This doesn't necessarily trouble Isadora in principle. Yeah, but does it trouble the wife in London? They do become aware of each other and... And? <laughs> like, they become aware of each other and Eleanor, who's the wife, is not shocked to learn about this and is not, like, deeply negative to Isadora. They do both struggle with jealousy about it, but the ideal of free love was very kind of dominant in the social circles that Isadora oh, okay. was in. So this... Idea. I don't know if you've ever heard that quote, like, fulfilling your sexual urges should be like drinking a glass of water. Oh, okay. Um, I've heard similar quotes. You've heard similar quotes, where basically the idea is that sexual relationships are just a natural human relationship and we should be able to have them freely with each other. And so while they both struggle a lot with jealousy, in principle, they're okay with it on a personal level. It's not always easy for them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she starts a relationship with... Gordon Craig. And in January of 1906, she finds that she's pregnant. She continued to work through much of the pregnancy up until May on account of having her family to support. By this time, she had started the first of her schools, which I will talk about a little bit later, as well as having Craig to support, whose theatre ambitions weren't making him a lot of money at this time. So is Isadora the breadwinner for her siblings or some of her siblings? Sometimes. She's the breadwinner for her family. Sometimes she's the breadwinner for Craig. Sometimes. Okay. She has a school which she's supporting right now. Um, mm-hmm. But she's also very successful at this time. So she's earning enough money to do this at the moment. Okay. So she'd spent a long time by this time sort of dreaming about and romanticizing the idea of pregnancy and having a child. But the pregnancy itself was much more challenging than she expected. It was strange to see, she wrote, my beautiful marble body softened and stretched and deformed. My little breasts grew large and soft. My nimble feet grew slower. My ankles swelled. Where was my lovely, youthful, naiad form? Which I think is very understandable. Mm -hmm. For such a physical person, especially, right? Yeah, exactly. For someone who has not only her career, but kind of her entire identity as a person, like built around dance. And I think probably even more so then than now. Like, people talk about motherhood in very idealized language that often doesn't acknowledge, like, physical and often very uncomfortable and unpleasant realities of being pregnant. Yeah, I think so. And I think because she had kind of longed for it so intensely. Mm. So she settled in a seaside cottage in the Netherlands after May when she stopped performing for the late stage of the pregnancy. Gordon Craig visited occasionally, but largely left her alone. Although he did leave her his dog, Black, for company. (laughs) Um, She had another friend there, Kathleen. So she wasn't alone, but the end stage of the pregnancy was very difficult for her. However, she has a successful childbirth. She comes out of it okay. The baby comes out of it alive. She describes it, however, as unheard of uncivilized barbarism. Don't let me hear of any woman's movement or suffragette movement until women have put an end to this wholly useless agony. (laughs) (laughs) So the number one priority for feminism is to somehow do away with childbirth. The operation of childbirth, like other operations, shall be made painless and endurable. Well, I mean, they have invented epidurals, which I guess they didn't have then. So maybe she's right. So Gordon was present for the birth, but left soon after and didn't show a great deal of interest in the baby at this stage. Isadora was a little upset by this, but given the nature of their relationship, was not really 
shocked by it. Mm, Does the baby have a name? Not yet. Okay. When Isadora asked Craig in a letter about the name, he responded, call her anything you damn please. Sophocles, if you like. All right, well. The baby was nicknamed Snowdrop for several months, and eventually (laughs) they settled on Deirdre. Okay. Soon after giving birth, Isadora returned to the stage. The financial toll of that break in her performing had been great. I was not the least prepared for the ordeal of a tour, she wrote. The first separation from my baby was very painful. My health was in a precarious condition as the baby was only half weaned. So who was looking after her baby while this happened? She had a nurse to look after the baby. I remember that often when I danced, the milk overflowed running down my tunic and caused me much embarrassment. How difficult it is for a woman to have a career. Mm. She also had a great deal of difficulty with her health in the months following the birth, which doctors diagnosed as neuralgia, which was a term they very vaguely used for bad health complaints from women that they didn't really understand. (laughs) Um, You know, it seems like it's a combination of postpartum depression and just the difficulties of recovering from Mm. childbirth while you have a dance career. Mm. Fair enough. Mm. So it wasn't easy for her, but she loved Deirdre a lot. And she also talks about it as changing her relationship with her gender. At one stage, she writes, Once I danced, more like a tree or wave, but now I feel like just the beginnings of being a woman. Just the beginnings. The others at my age arrived at a long time ago. <laughs> um, How old is she? She's 29, I think. Okay. Like okay. late 20s, maybe just 30. Okay. So when she says the others at my age arrived a long time ago, do you think she's specifically talking about like childbirth and being a mother and saying that like other women are generally having kids younger or like... Do you think it's more esoteric than that? I think that she sees motherhood as quite a spiritual experience. Mm. So I think it is both that and is quite esoteric. Okay. Not long after the birth of the baby, Gordon ended the relationship with her. Isadora would have preferred to continue it, but they remain close in any case. And she continues to write him updates about the baby and about her dance career. And he will financially support her at a few times in the future. Less of a scumbag than he could have been, certainly. He's, yeah, he's kind of a mixed bag. He's he all be, right. Yeah, he can be kind of misogynistic. You know, she was supporting you, Gordon. Get it together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's very much a turn-of-the-century man. A few years after this, she would have a second child, Patrick, with a man named Paris Singer. Paris Singer is a relation of Isaac Singer of the Singer Sewing Machine. Oh. Incidentally. So I think Isaac Singer's daughter or maybe granddaughter has been recommended to us multiple times as a podcast episode. So she starts a relationship with Paris Singer. Paris Singer, on account of his family's business, is a millionaire. I have a Singer sewing machine. I funded this. (laughs) (laughs) He basically turns up at her rooms in France one day and he's like, hello, I've heard about your work. I'd like to give you half a million pounds to to your school and she's like yes please <laughs> sure, okay why not and then she's like the sex was fantastic okay okay well i'm glad this is working out so well for her that's a great like relationship for anyone to have someone just shows up at your door gives you half a million pounds and then like excellent sex like sure yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was pretty wild yeah so she becomes pregnant again to paris singer she's very excited about the idea of having a second child but apprehensive of going through another pregnancy. Mm. So she did consider having an abortion, but after some thought, she was like, no, I want to meet the child. Mm. And she decided not to do that. Instead, she hired a doctor, told him about her fears about childbirth, and he provided morphine during birth. Yeah, cool. Birthing. Okay. Was that a better experience That was a better experience. She was like, it was fantastic. It was painless. Awesome. Was she like completely drug-free the first time? Yeah. Oh, dear God. Yeah, no, she did it 
drug free the first time and then she was like that's the worst experience of my life being a woman sucks i'm never doing that again and then she did not do that again and had a much nicer experience good so she named her second child patrick she was often away from her children due to the requirements of her touring career Mm-hmm. But she missed them a great deal, and the first time after a tour of America that she came home to find that Patrick had gone while she was gone from being an infant to being a little toddler. Mm-hmm. Um, she was like, oh no, I missed so much. And she says, I vowed to stay at home and spend much more time with the children. So where's home? Paris. Mm-hmm. She's in France now. All right. I'm going to take a little break from the children to tell you about her schools. Okay. So around this time, she's also planning on starting a school to pass on her dance form to the next generation. This has been a dream of hers for a long time. And as she gets older, she feels that it's becoming more urgent. Mm. Her performing career can only last for so long. And she obviously is like, I want my dance to continue after I can no longer do it. So in 1905, so just before her first child was born, she and Elizabeth opened a school in Germany. It was fully funded by Isadora's performance earnings, and she mostly took in poor children from the local area whose struggling families would be delighted to send a child literally anywhere where they would get food. So she didn't take any fees. She paid for everything. And she only took in girls at this stage, not believing that she had the skills to manage or teach a classroom of boys. But she hoped to change that sometime in the future. It was a weird kind of school in some ways, and in other ways, a very normal school. The uniform was little ancient Greek tunics and sandals. Yeah, that's weird. (laughs) That's weird. That's weird. But is that weirder than, like, the other school uniforms people have to wear? Now that you bring that up, not really. There were some sort of quotes from locals where they were like, yeah, we used to see the children walking around in their little sandals and tunics and be like, this is wildly inappropriate for the weather. They shouldn't be doing that. And I was like, no, they shouldn't. And then I remembered what they made us wear in school. Yeah. School uniforms are just kind of always a bit silly. Yeah, so the little tunics and sandals were a bit silly. They also did academic classes as well as dance classes. So they had academic classes during the day and dance classes mostly in the evenings. And did they have like other academic teachers? Yes, so they hired other academic teachers. And because Isadora was away performing a lot, Elizabeth took on most of the teaching. Mm -hmm. But Elizabeth and Isadora had worked together on a lot of her sort of dance technique and dance ideology. So Elizabeth had a fairly clear understanding of what she was doing. Because Elizabeth was the everyday teacher, the everyday dancing teacher, the children remember her as a stern disciplinarian and look forward to every time Isadora comes back from tour and has fun class with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know how it is. There were constant struggles with funding for the school. As a performer, Isadora's income wasn't consistent and also she took breaks for pregnancy and that kind of thing. So there were always struggles with funding. And the Duncans as well had never been particularly good with managing money. Mm. When they have money, they'll spend it all and then they don't have it anymore. They don't have it anymore. Yeah. So they were probably a little bit ambitious starting an entire school in the first place. Mm, Especially the one where the kids don't pay anything. Yeah. So while Isadora was away on tour and trying to raise money for the school, Elizabeth developed a different plan. She reached an arrangement with a German man named Max Mertz, who I must unfortunately mention was a eugenicist. Okay, okay. It's very kind of connected to this, like, sort of body yeah. health yeah. thing that they've got going on. It's very hard to avoid eugenicists. Yeah. So Elizabeth reached an arrangement with a German man named Max Mertz to fund the school and keep it in Germany. Meanwhile, Isadora was saying that she wanted to move it to France, where she was based now. 
So if they're in Germany taking in the local kids, mm-hmm. if they're saying we want to move the school to France, does that really mean closing the school and starting a whole new school in France? Or are they proposing to up these children and take them to France? Isadora is proposing to move the children to France. Okay. She's obviously not planning to force anyone to yeah. move to France, but the children were boarding at the school. Okay. And so she's planning to move them to France. Elizabeth is planning to keep the school where it is now that Max is funding it because he feels that it aligns This is good his... for the little white children or whatever. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It aligns with his ideals about health and bodies and natural and movement. weird ancient Greek stuff. So Isadora and Elizabeth essentially end up having what's kind of a custody battle for the children. Oh, over other people's kids. Over other people's <laughs> children. Because a lot of the children came from very poor families. Mm. And so they were kind of like, well, I mean, France still good my child will still eat yeah, yeah. oh god so the this pair- isn't great no <laughs> it's bad yeah mm. at least the eugenicist will pay for my child to eat in a foreign country like yeah this society is falling apart yeah world war one will happen this society is falling what apart. year is it the school was opened in 1905 and lasted for a couple of years before this started okay, happening. okay. Um, so world war one is happening but not like today not like immediately yeah, world war one will come up so eventually they reach an agreement most of the students would prefer to remain in germany so most of the students find their way to elizabeth and max's school but isadora takes her like most favorite six pupils to work with her and become like a sort of student performing group with her okay and is that in paris and that's in paris at this stage Mm -hmm. and these six girls will stay with her and work with her into their adulthood Mm -hmm. okay in 1913 and i will warn you that this is the part where the children die Okay. okay okay in 1913 isadora's two children and their nurse set out from her studio to head home and were involved in a car accident. It's unclear exactly what happened. The car swerved to avoid another car and stalled facing the river. And when the driver got out to crank the engine, the car seems to have rolled into the river. The nurse and both children drowned. Initially, the driver was up on charges of culpable homicide, which is basically equivalent to manslaughter. Mm -hmm. But it's unclear whether there was actually anything he could have or should have done. And Isadora requested that he be released without charges. Mm -hmm. That's very sad. It's very sad. And Isadora was devastated by the tragedy. Mm. Following the tragedy, she goes to Corfu, where Raymond is, working with a refugee camp. Corfu is a Greek island, isn't it? Yeah, it's an island near Greece. Mm -hmm. And she writes from Corfu, I know my real self died with my children. I do not recognize what remains. If I continue to exist, it will be as another creature. Kinder, perhaps. But I'll never dance again. So she stayed in Corfu with Raymond for a couple of months, helping with the refugee camp. It's terrible to see the results of this war, she wrote. If we can save some of these children, I will say Deirdre and Patrick are doing it for me. Mm. She tried to beg Paris Singer to have another child, searching for an end for her grief, but Paris was not ready to do that emotionally. Fair enough. Understandably. And finally, she spent some time with a friend, Eleonora Doucet, in Italy, in a seaside villa. Isadora says she credits Eleonora with saving her life Mm -hmm. at this point. She says... Eleonora never asked her to cease to grieve. She grieved with me, and for the first time since the children's death, I felt I was not alone. And so they spend several months together. Incidentally, Eleonora is also gay. 
Okay. They don't seem to have had a relationship, mm-hmm. but I just thought I'd bring that up. They were very close friends. I like that you said also gay, where you haven't had no hint that Isadora is gay for this entire episode. Isadora is <laughs> is queer. I'm sure it's She better be. <laughs> she is queer, and you are about to hear about it. I only know Isadora is queer because the podcast is called Queer as Fact yeah. so far. Yeah, I know. Trust me. So she spent several months with Eleonora and danced for her in a private performance several times, the first time she had danced since the children died. She also met the sculptor Romano Romanelli and had a brief affair. What a name. Isadora fell pregnant again. That seems emotionally fraught. Following her time with Eleonora, she gradually returned to Paris through Italy via Rome. In Rome, she began dancing again. It was sad, she wrote, but I said to myself, nevertheless, I am not in the tomb. I am still here. And then she returned to Paris to see Paris. (laughs) Paris the man in Paris. Paris Paris saw her and in order to give her some space to grieve, offered to completely fund her school and gave her one of the buildings he owned to serve as her new studio in France. Oh, thanks, Paris. I think part of the reason she was attracted to Paris as well as the excellent sex and millions of dollars was that he had an ancient Greek name. I don't know. I think the excellent sex and the millions of dollars are probably just enough. (laughs) Yeah, like I feel like if someone just walks up to your apartment and is like, hey, can I give you 500,000 pounds? 500,000 pounds in the best head of your life? It's like, well, sure. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you must. She gave birth to Romano's child just as war broke out in France. The child lived only a few hours. Oh, Mm. my God. The grief of losing these three children would stay with Isadora for the rest of her life. She incorporated this sense of loss of being a mother to no one into a dance that she called Ave Maria, based on Mm -hmm. the music that she used. She wrote a letter to a friend where she described her feelings, and it's the same sort of feeling that she puts into her dance gesturally, where she says, Can you know what it is to have had three babies and now have simply arms? Hmm. That's very sad. We're going to skip ahead a little bit here, just because if I told you everything that Isadora did in her life, we would be here forever. And a lot of it is just she danced, people cheered. Good. Okay, well, I'm glad that, you know, obviously she's had an awful time, but she's having a successful career. Yeah, she's having a very successful career in in Europe at this time. Some things Um, are going well for her, at least. Unfortunately, war broke out. So in 1917, Isadora and the six students that she Mm -hmm. still had with her left Europe for safety and moved to Long Island in America. Can I just ask a random question? Mm-hmm. What languages does she speak? She speaks English. Her French and her German are, like, not fluent, but they're pretty good. Okay, so um, she's teaching these kids in German? Yeah. People often talk about her speaking, like, a Franco-English dialect and things like that. <laughs> so she just kind of does communicate. <laughs> On Long Island, Isadora met Mercedes de Acosta. Aha. Mercedes, born in 1892, was 15 years younger than Isadora. She was a Cuban-American playwright, poet, and novelist whose work had little commercial success. More famously than that, she was living openly as a lesbian. Okay. As far as I can tell, this is the only relationship that Isadora had with a woman, but she had mixed in queer circles for much of her adult life. So when you say she mixed in queer circles... Was that just an inevitable thing that someone would do if they were kind of in the world of, like, art and dance? Or is that a thing that she, like, actively sought out? I think it's a thing that is inevitable in the kind of spheres that she's Mm. in. But she also does express having, like, an acceptance for it, specifically an acceptance for queerness that goes beyond what she sees around her in society. And she says she writes this after she just by chance met a young man who was 
miserable after a breakup and she was sort of talking him through it and she says like she found out during the conversation that the object of his affection was another man and in this letter she writes as I've always been a student of Plato I was not as shocked as some people might have been I believe the highest love is a purely spiritual flame which is not necessarily dependent on sex so to go back to how good Paris is in bed Mm. (laughs) (laughs) okay my first question is how do we know that the sex with Paris was excellent oh I can give you a quote Did Isadora say it herself? Yes. Okay. Isadora said it herself, and I will read it to you because I warned you that there was going to be explicit sex, so it won't be- We might as well get our money's worth. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) right. Let me go back and find it. I learned for the first time what the nerves and sensations can be transformed to. I became a quivering mass of responsive senses in the hands of an expert voluptuary, like a flock of wild goats cropping the herbage of the soft hillside so his kisses grazed over my body, and like the earth itself, I felt a thousand mouths devouring me. (laughs) Oh my god! <laughs> like a flock of wild goats. Yes. Did you? It's <laughs> always this goes I... on. I've, I've stopped, but she talks oh. about Zeus in a minute. Continue, continue. <laughs> like Zeus, he transformed himself into many shapes and forms. I knew him now as a bull, now as a swan, again as a golden shower, and I was by this love carried over the waves, caressed with white wings, delicately and strangely seduced and hallowed in a golden cloud. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's how we know it was the best sex she'd had so far. Not- I hope that he got to hear this quote. If he made her feel like that, he deserves to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, truly. <laughs> So how do her feelings about sex, like her feelings that this sex with Paris was amazing and transcendent, fit with her understanding that the highest love is like spiritual, not sexual? I think that what she's saying when she says that it's spiritual and not about sex there is specifically that it's not about the body. It's not that she's attracted to men as opposed to that it's not about having sex because while she doesn't want to put sex into her art, she has no problems putting sex into her life and feels like that's a natural and like very positive part of her life. Okay. So what she's saying in that quote where she spoke to that young man and then she said that love is not about sex is that like she doesn't worry about the sex of the partner. Yeah, exactly. Rather than she doesn't worry about the sexual intercourse. Yeah, no, that was a little unclear because I think they didn't say gender then. I mean, she may also be talking about the sex of the partner. Like, that's yeah. just ambiguous. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just ambiguous. That's the way that I read it because it mm-hmm. was specifically her responding to a gay relationship. Yeah. And saying, I didn't find this shocking because I never thought the sex of my partner was important. Okay. Isadora and Mercedes had been like vaguely known to each other before this. Mercedes had a much older sister who was involved in the sort of salon circles in America. Mm -hmm. And by this time, Isadora was simply famous enough that people would probably have heard of her. At Long Island was their first actual meeting. Mercedes describes their relationship as something built on both spiritual and sexual connection. She says Isadora would frequently dance for her for three or four hours at a time. But also when a friend asked her how she and Isadora expressed their affection for each other, said, Isadora liked to lick my breasts and the moisture between my legs. Okay, yeah. well, which is pretty clear. They had sex. I don't know what we'll do in this podcast. So we don't have to be like, so like, what was the nature of the relationship? Like, it's just here. Yeah. Assuming that Robert Shank didn't lie to me about what he saw in that archive. Mm. Mm. So... We can't do anything about that, so... (laughs) Yeah. In what context is he saying that Mercedes wrote this down? Yeah, he says that a friend asked her and that that's what she said and it came from that archive and that's all that I can tell you about that. Okay, so we don't really know how or why... It could have been in a letter, like it could have been in a note to someone or it could have been her recounting that. Yeah. 
I was wondering, you know, it is quite explicit. And I was wondering what context she was having those conversations, but we won't know. Do you think she was like, I want to be good at sex with Mercedes. How do you be good at sex? You'd be like a nibbling goat. I better leave her for it. There's no information about how she found sex with Mercedes. Like, there's no information about whether she found that different yeah. to having sex with men. So that goat quote was a bit of an outline. <laughs> yeah. So after they spent some time together on Long Island in 1917, they parted for a while after this. And then later in Isadora's life in 1926, Mercedes came back to her. At the time, Isadora was having quite a difficult time. Mm -hmm. In 1926, her career was on the decline. She was short of money. She was sad. Mercedes hears that her old lover is having a bad time and comes to see her in a hotel. And when she comes in, she says, Archangel, exclaimed Isadora. I was dressed in a white cape without a hat. And afterwards, she told me she had been lying there praying for help at that moment. As I stood in the doorway, the light from the ceiling in the hallway fell on my head in rays. And for a moment, she thought I was a celestial being. I thought you were an archangel from another world come to help me in answer to my prayers. I think you are an archangel. I shall call you that from now on. How did you find me here? <laughs> and that's how they rekindle their relationship. And she does call Mercedes Archangel from there on, like as a pet name. It's um, pretty cute. So after they rekindle their relationship, Isadora writes this poem about them having sex. Be kind to her. She's a dancer and not a poet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but which I mean, it's very sweet, but it's, you know. Uh, my expectations have been set. Yeah. Beneath the forehead, broad and bright, shine eyes, clear wells of sight. A slender body, hands soft and white, to be the service of my delight. Two sprouting breasts, grand and sweet, invite my hungry mouth to eat. From whence two nipples, firm and pink, persuade my thirsty soul to drink. And lower still a secret place, where I'd fain hide my loving face. Archangel from another sphere, God sent to light my pathway here. I kneel in adoration, dear. My kisses like a swarm of bees would find their way between thy knees. And suck the honey of thy lips, embracing thy two slender hips. That was quite funny. It was. <laughs> it was. That's why I warned you. This is definitely poetry, like, on a personal level, yeah. not a publishable level. Yeah. I don't think it's funny that, once again, she's using, like, all this kind of nature imagery, like, you mm. know, kissing like a swarm of bees. Yeah. I thought that sprouting breasts was also interesting, too. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. So you said that Mercedes is, like, openly a lesbian. Yeah. So is this relationship publicly known or no? People seem to be aware of it. They're not going around hand in hand, you know. They're not sort of publicly broadcasting their relationship, but they don't seem to be putting much effort into hiding it either. Okay. So it's like known in their circles. Yeah, it's known in their circles, but it's not public knowledge as such. Mercedes is known for having had every famous woman Greta Garbo I forget who the others were and this mm. is said by people who knew her at the time okay mm. so people are just like yeah this kind of tracks yeah I think I remember trying once to kind of map out all of the like lesbian connections at the time and being like I don't really know how we would talk about a lot of these people because they're just so like in and out of each other's beds basically yeah, so it'd be yeah. kind of, it's difficult to talk about one without talking about a bunch of the others yeah, yeah. as well so and you don't want it to just end up being a list of like, today's our episode on Mercedes. She slept with and then just kind of go through a list and be like, all those women are very important and famous in their own right. But we'll give you one sentence about each. That's the episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So is this Isadora's first lesbian experience? This is the only 
relationship with a woman that we have any evidence of. Like people speculate that she and Eleonora were doing something when they were in that seaside villa, but there's Mm. no written evidence of it anywhere. Maybe they did, but it seems more like Isadora was just grieving the loss Mm. of her children. Yeah. Yeah. So the only evidence there is like, well, they're both queer women who were close to each other. Yeah. And when Isadora writes about Eleonora at that time, she's kind of like, she supported me and understood me through my grief. Okay. Rather than we had so, yeah. sex or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So like, like maybe she's had sex with other women, but Mercedes is the only one that we know we about. Know about. Mm-hmm. Mercedes and Isadora would remain close for the rest of Isadora's life. When Isadora was asked about her great loves by a friend, she said, I seem to love each one of them to the uttermost limits of love. If Ted, Lohengrin, those were her nicknames for various reasons for Gordon and Paris. Okay. The Archangel and Sergei stood before me. I wouldn't know which one to choose. I loved and still love them all. Who's Sergei? You'll hear about Sergei in a second. <laughs> Sergei's coming up. So Romano didn't write a mention. No, he was really just her little fling. She just happened to get pregnant. Mm. She had innumerable sexual relationships. Like, I chose not to read you a list of people that she slept with because, you That's know. That's fair. It doesn't really do anything. Yeah. I've named the people that she was close with for a long time or that seemed to have been significant to mm-hmm. her. And conveniently, she's given you a list to work yes, with. she did. In 1921, Isadora, at an invitation from the Soviet Union, decided that she was going to go to the Soviet Union and open a school there. This made sense in terms of what the Soviet Union was up to now. Publicly funding art made a lot of sense. Isadora was keen on it and their ideals seemed to be in line. She'd travelled in Russia before. She'd toured Russia prior to the revolution. But since 1917, when the Russian Revolution happened and the Tsar was overthrown and the Bolsheviks came to power, she hadn't been to Russia. Not many people had been to Russia because it was having civil unrest. So Isadora headed over to the Soviet Union with One of her students, Irma, she's tired of trying to make her dances commercially successful in order to fund her schools. And so she decides to go to the Soviet Union where she's heard that they will publicly fund her school. Unfortunately, by the time she got there, the Soviet Union was in economic disarray. There was a civil war. So is this in the 20s? Yeah. The government didn't have as much money to provide to her art as she had hoped. So they go over to the Soviet Union. They are given the mansion of an aristocrat that's been requisitioned for the purpose. Yeah, cool. And Where's the aristocrat? <laughs> Dead. Fled. In a ditch I don't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they get this mansion, which they turn into a school. But when winter comes, they find there is enough money for firewood and they are forced to send the children home while they sort out what they're going to do next. And are these now Russian children? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So they do the same sort of thing where they select their students from the local population. They held auditions. Apparently in Russia, everyone was extremely keen to come to Isadora Duncan's school because she had performed in Russia before that and been quite popular and was sort of known as an ideologically acceptable dancer in the new society. Yeah. And Isadora herself, while she was there, embraces Bolshevism like wholeheartedly. Okay. She doesn't really understand it beyond the fact that she's like, they want to fund art. They want to feed everyone. They don't want there to be wealth inequality. This can't possibly be bad. So what is Bolshevism? It is a kind of socialism. Lenin wrote a lot of things about it. I don't want to super get into socialist theory, but its unique features have to do with the way that it's structured politically. Okay, Um, so we're pretty into the weeds of, like, political theory here. Yeah. When we say specifically Bolshevism as opposed to just, like, socialism. Socialism. Yeah. So she goes to Russia. It's poorer than she expects. She remembers Russia from prior to the revolution, but still she's keen. She says, on her first night, 
she speaks to a young Bolshevik as she's walking back from dinner. He talked more and more inspired with me until by dawn, we were also ready to die for Lenin and the cause. (laughs) (laughs) She's really all in. She's really all in on everything. And Lunacharsky, who was the minister for the arts who had invited her Mm -hmm. there, wrote in a tribute to her in a newspaper, Comrade Duncan is going through a phase of rather militant communism that sometimes involuntarily makes us smile. (laughs) <laughs> so even the Russians were like, she's really going hard. <laughs> yeah, even the Russians were like, oh. <laughs> That's, it's so funny to be like, you know, embarrassingly communist for like just post-revolution <laughs> yeah. Russia. That's exactly right. It's 1921 Russia and they're like, um, tone it down. Anyway, so in 1921, Lenin introduced his new economic policy. I will tell you about that extremely briefly. Basically, he was like, whoops, we weren't ready for full communism. Um, Small business is okay if you like guys. Okay. Which meant that Isadora was now able to perform for money and accept fees. Oh, okay. So she previously really couldn't get her own income. She just fully had to rely on the government. Yeah, that's exactly right. She didn't really love this because she was like, I specifically came here because I wanted someone to just give me a salary to run this school, but I guess I'll do it. Yeah. And she also wasn't keen because she'd really enjoyed the fact that her performances were able to reach a different audience when they hadn't cost anything. She was like, I'm just getting random people off the street. You know, like random workers, people without any kind of disposable income, people who aren't familiar with the kind of artistic and intellectual scene that I come from. And she was really enjoying tapping into that audience. So she wasn't super happy about having to dance for money again. And she did put on free performances still on sort of special occasions, like Christmas Eve, she would put on a free performance and things like Mm -hmm. that. But between that and taking some paying students, which they ran as like a separate stream from their original batch of students, they managed to fund the school. In 1921, she also met the Russian poet Sergei Yesenin. Oh, it's Sergei. I mentioned Sergei before. She and Sergei actually had a very brief relationship, but I'm obligated to mention him. <laughs> one, because she put him in her list of great loves. Yeah. yeah. And two, because they got married. Oh. Okay. For her whole life, Isadora has been like vehemently opposed to marriage, mm-hmm. presumably partly due to her mother's experience, mm. partly for sort of feminist reasons. However, she took Sergei on as a lover and then when you just made that sound so like professional. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't know how to say. Like, she's sort of taken him on as somebody she wants to keep in her life. She wants to travel with him. Mm-hmm. And so when she makes the decision to tour Europe again, she wants to take Sergei with her. For some context, Sergei was an extremely famous poet in the Soviet Union. Prior to 1917, he had been invited to read his poetry to the Tsarina. Now he was considered kind of the poet of the revolution. Like he puts words to the soul of Russia. He's extremely well-known. He spoke only Russian and a little German. Mostly he refused to speak in any other language than Russian because he felt it was the language of his soul. Isadora spoke English and French and a little German. So oh, they're I see. really struggling by in German. Yeah, they're kind of struggling by in German. Over time, Isadora learns a little bit of Russian, but she's never great at it. Her friends describe it as something like she learned 400 words of Russian and got by through pantomime. Okay. But they had the translator that she had brought with her and they became lovers. <laughs> That's the way you said that. It really sounds like the translator's in the room the whole time. <laughs> I assume he left at some point and they didn't need words to have sex. But they got by. But in order to bring Sergei on her Europe and US tours, 
she was compelled to marry him. The Soviet Union at this time was extremely progressive in terms of sex and marriage. There was no fault divorce. Either partner could instigate it. They weren't bound together in the same way. It just wasn't as complicated. So when you say that she had to marry him to bring him on tour, was that like a visa thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically. So this sort of made the decision easier for Isadora, although it didn't change her in principle opposition to marriage. And she's very clear the whole time that the only reason she's doing this is, I married my husband to get him past the customs offices. That's why I married him. That's only why. Okay. Obviously, like, she does love him, but it's really a practical marriage. Yeah. However, even though marriage in the Soviet Union was not as opposed to her ideology. She ran into problems in the rest of the world. In the US, as it turned out, her marriage to a foreign national had made her citizenship void. Oh, what? She tried to renew her American passport and discovered that she no longer could. Oh my God. That's not right. Which created problems because the Soviet Union was such a new nation that their Soviet passports sometimes weren't recognized. Mm. So is she like a Soviet citizen now? Through marriage, yeah. Okay. But she's also kind of not recognized as a citizen of anywhere by some countries. Because of the Soviet Union being how it is, yeah. I see. It was by all accounts a messy relationship, which became more messy as they toured together. Both partners were prone to outbursts of anger at each other. Sergei sometimes became violent. The pair remained together for the duration of the tour, but separated as soon as they returned to Russia. A few years later, Sergei would die from suicide in 1925. He left his assets to Isadora in his will, but upon receiving the inheritance, she immediately turned it over to his family. Mm. Mm. By the 1920s, Isadora's career was in decline. This was happening for a variety of reasons. One was that change in morality that I'd mentioned earlier. Mm. Her sort of semi-nude costumes were no longer considered as acceptable in Europe, especially as she was often performing with her students. Earlier, she'd been able to perform with her students in their sort of little diaphanous tunics and things like that. And that had been okay, but increasingly stricter laws around children working in theater and a shift in public conception of children on stage made this appear less acceptable and more indecent. How Um, old are her students? Do you know? They range from sort of six or seven through to teenagers. Okay. Um, So they're really, some of them are quite little kids. Yeah. She's still got those original six that she's taking around with her who Mm -hmm. are adults at this stage. Mm -hmm. So Irma will stay in Russia and get married. Such a crazy life to think about, just to deviate from Isadora for a minute, to think about Irma. She's just some like poor German village kid (laughs) and this international woman turns up in her local area and is like, hey, I'll feed you if you come learn my ancient Greek dance style. And her parents are like, yeah, well, we do need some extra food. And next thing you know, you're in Russia. (laughs) Yeah, next thing you know, you're married in the Soviet Union. (laughs) (laughs) Part of it was also the novelty of what Isadora was doing wearing off. By this time, there were other dancers doing the same kind of things that Isadora was doing. Like I said, the ballet russe came through and kind of revitalized ballet as an art. Isadora consistently believed that she was doing something deeper and more artistic than anyone else, but from a public perspective, that was not really coming through. That sounds in character. Is she doing anything different? Like, has her style been developing or is she just still doing the same? Her style has been developing. One, she deals with sort of darker subject matter, especially Mm, after the death of her children. And people also talk about the way that her style becomes sort of more regal and slower and a kind of heavier movement, I guess. Mm -hmm. When she's 40, she is no longer able to and probably no longer interested in portraying sort of gambling in the fields Mm -hmm. the way that she did when she was younger. The decline of her career was also exacerbated by the fact that Isadora was no longer a young woman and 
I'm sure I don't need to tell you all that performing arts is not nice to older women. So would she be in like her 50s now? She's in her 40s at this stage. Andre Levinson, who I read you a very early critique of Isadora, he was that guy who said that she was everything and so she was nothing, Mm -hmm. said, if you didn't see her when she was 20, you never saw her at all. (laughs) Andre, get it together. (laughs) Yeah, the fact that she was no longer young and thus no longer looked the way that people visualized her when she was famous, Mm. when she was very famous, also had an effect. She had largely stopped performing by this stage, although she occasionally did still put on a performance. Her heart wasn't really in it anymore. Encouraged by Mercedes, she published an autobiography, which she didn't really enjoy the writing of. Mercedes is like the only way that I ever got her to do it was by we rented a house in Nice together and I shut her in her bedroom and let her out when she'd slid a certain number of pages (laughs) under the door to me. Oh my God. Um, But basically she'd signed a contract to get an advance. She'd been like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, I'll publish an autobiography. And the publisher had been like, sure, here's $1,500. And she was like, cool, I'll do it. And then she was like, help, I don't want to do this. And so Mercedes shut her in the bedroom until she did. All right. That's a bit full on. Yeah. So she didn't enjoy the writing of it. She described it as the only thing she had ever done purely for the money, which obviously is not the case. We've heard of a lot of dancers that she did for the money. Yeah. yeah um, but-, but, you know, I can see that she's going through this. Yeah. You don't have to be 100% accurate in how you represent your life all the time. The feeling yeah. is clear. In September of 1927, Isadora passed away in a freak car accident. She was about to go for a joyride in an acquaintance's car and her long scarf got tangled around the front wheel. When the car took off, she was killed instantly. That is a horrible way to die. She was in France at the time and her family and friends, as many as who could make it there, held her a grand funeral. They filled her house with flowers. Mm. She was cremated and her ashes are kept with her children's. Mm. It's so sad for the family to have like three members of the family all just die in car accidents. Irma continued the school in the Soviet Union, which would remain in some form until the mid-50s. Many of Isadora's ideas to do with dance have been incorporated into contemporary dance techniques today. Her remaining students, so those six girls, a number of them remained quite close and they continued her dance legacy. And even today, when you see people doing Isadora's dances, they'll often be described as like a third generation Duncan dancer. Oh, that's fun. Or something like that, depending on who's taught them. That's cool. It is nice that after, you know, so long and trying so hard to get her like dance style out there and get what she was doing recognized that like there are still people doing it now. Yeah. One, that there are still people doing it now. And two, that some of what she created has just been so thoroughly incorporated Mm. into modern dance techniques that it's not even sort of mentioned, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. It's always interesting when you talk about people who are like groundbreaking in some way, because if you are groundbreaking and successfully groundbreaking, by the time we talk about you, you seem like almost kind of boring. Yeah. Yeah. Like if we actually talked about the specific things she did when she danced, we'd probably be like, oh, well, that's just what dance looks like. If everyone who comes after you has been influenced by you, then you just look like you're doing the normal thing. Yeah. You're just some guy who was all right at that at that point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What do you think she would think about her style being incorporated into contemporary dance? Do you think she'd feel vindicated or do you think she'd feel kind of like vaguely annoyed? (laughs) I feel like she would feel both of these things and oscillate between them every day. Yeah. She, she would like- be like, yes, I have created the new art. And then she would be like, everyone else is doing it wrong. You don't know what art is. Yeah. <laughs> you just made it part of the boring old art. Yeah. Yes. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you can find it and many more episodes on Podbean, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or whatever other podcatcher you use. It's probably there. If you want to support us financially, you can subscribe to our Patreon or you can buy our merch on Redbubble. We have assorted bits and pieces there, t-shirts, bags, items. All of this information is available on our website, queerasfacts.com. We'll be back after our media break on June the 1st. We'll see you then.